Hey guys, welcome back to Late Night Murder. As always, we're your hosts. I'm Nicole. I'm Chase. And this week, we're going to be talking about the House of Horrors and the Cleveland Monster. Do we have any new Patreons this week? It's not a brand new Patreon. Uh, Tina, who was part of our Shady People, upgraded to part of our Is It Thursday, and she was able to listen to that full episode that we did just last week on Mike Malloy. I have to tell you guys, if you are not part of the Is It Thursday people, it is worth joining at least for one month just so that you can hear that last episode. That was my favorite episode to date. It had everything in there. It was 1930s, you got speakeasies, all kinds of crazy stuff. It was it was an awesome episode. Yeah, we have like a life insurance scam plot going on during it. It was a crazy story for sure. It was amazing. Trigger warning, this episode contains descriptions and mentions of domestic violence, kidnapping, sexual assault, rape, as well as animal abuse. So listener discretion is advised. Okay, let's go ahead and dive into this week, shall we? Let's do it. So we're going to start this story off by talking about Michelle Knight. All right. Michelle was born on April 23rd, 1981 in Cleveland, Ohio, to her mother, Barbara. Okay. As a child growing up, Michelle wanted to become a firefighter and later even a veterinarian, which I knew you would really enjoy because you're a pet guy. Yeah, definitely. Not saying that I'm not, but you're you're a pet guy. Uh, yeah. So even with these big aspirations, Michelle had a poor childhood. Okay. Her family was stricken really hard by like poverty, and they actually lived in their car for over a year. For over a year. Over a year, it was the mom, Barbara, Michelle, and at least two other siblings living in this car. Man, that's some that's some rough times. Yeah. When the family was finally able to find a roof over their head that didn't have wheels attached, it was a very cramped house with, like, family and family friends. It was just a house that they fit as many people as they could into it. Got it. Michelle would later state about this house that, quote, We didn't have a couch to sit on. We didn't have a stove. Just to give us a warm meal, I had to cook on a space heater. It takes four hours for a hot dog to cook, end quote. On a space heater? On a space heater. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. Yeah. So this is how she's growing up, just to give you an idea of home life. While at this home, Michelle would later state that a male family member would constantly sexually assault her throughout the years that they lived there. Also, while threatening to kill her if she told anyone that this was happening. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's horrible. So because of these threats, Michelle stayed quiet and endured this abuse until she reached the age of about 14, 15. Damn it. So with everything going on with Michelle, all of the sexual abuse, the living in not-so-great conditions, all of that, she actually decides to run away from home at the age of 15. Yeah, I can't say I blame her, really. Well, she actually starts living under a bridge underneath the highway because it's the only place she had to go. From bad to worse, it's it's not good. I know. So when asked about this time in her life later on, she would actually state, quote, you name it, I went through it. I got to the point where I said, I'm more safer on the streets than I am living in my own home. So I ran away, end quote. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. 
And she would actually say that she had spent time sleeping in a garbage can a few times for safety, just to get away from people or try to stay warm, because, I mean, it's Ohio in the winter. And she would even eat at the local Baptist church when they offered, like, community meals or, like, come get free clothes kind of thing to stay warm at 15. That's horrible. Yeah. So her luck would start to turn around a little bit. In a weird sense, a drug dealer named Sniper found her while she was living under this bridge and took her under his wing, actually. Good? Uh, His name is Sniper? Yes. That's on that man's birth certificate? I don't think that's his birth given name. I think that's uh, his street name. Come on. I'm sure. I'm sure. Let's Uh, be real here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. But. Okay. So what's Sniper going to do for her? In exchange for running drugs and making drug deals, Michelle would get food as well as a little side money and the safest roof she's had over her head at this point in her life. Yeah, that's got that. I mean, that sounds pretty damn good. Yeah. So Michelle would actually later state about this quote, everybody has their own outlook on a drug dealer, but I say that he had a gentle heart and he had a big heart. He never hurt me, and he never once made me feel that I had to run or be uncomfortable, end quote. Good. Yeah. So, I mean, Sniper was like the best thing to happen to her. Okay. That's good. Mm-hmm. So, as Michelle's getting comfortable with this new chapter of her life, about six months into their deal, Sniper, unfortunately, is killed in a shootout with police. Oh, fuck. So, after he dies, Michelle goes back to live under the bridge. So, she doesn't want to go home. She doesn't have a place with Sniper anymore. And she just goes back to under the bridge. Okay. And then just a little side note, Michelle is a very small girl at this point. So she's around the age of 17. She's only four feet, seven inches tall. Oh, wow. Like she's tiny. So just keep that in your head. Okay. While living under the bridge for the second time now, A family member who lived with her family in that house found her and told her dad. Her dad came and basically drug her back to that house because she was still underage. And he's like, oh, you need to live at home. You need to be at home. I can kind of see that, though, from the dad's perspective, because he doesn't know that that shit's going on, does he? Yeah, he does not. Right. So he thinks she's just a runaway. Mm -hmm. That's that would be, I feel like, a pretty normal reaction. Yeah. So with moving back, Michelle went back to high school because she's 17. So Good. As she returns to high school, she actually returns to bullying because of her short stature, only being 4'7". Most of the students at her school had dubbed her, quote, shorty. Oh, fuck, so okay. Like Not a, good then. Yeah. So she goes back to shit, and she goes back to being sexually abused as well. Awful. However, while Michelle is still in high school, she actually starts dating a boy and becomes pregnant with his child. And even though the boy, the boyfriend wants nothing to do with Michelle or the child, Michelle doesn't care. She is going to love this kid, and she actually drops out of school to give birth and take care of her son, Joey. Ah, uh, okay. So now she's pregnant, and the guy doesn't. He's not going to help at all. He's not helping, no. Okay. I know, I know. You got really sad puppy dog cheeks over there. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just like it's from bad to worse the entire time so far. I'm not, 
I'm not digging it here. I'm I not know. enjoying So Michelle wanted the best for her son and wanted to give him a safety that she had never known, which I think is really commendable, like coming from what she came from. Instead of just continuing the cycle, she was like, no, this is stopping. I'm giving my son what I never got. You're damn right. That sounds like a good mom right there. So she's really starting to like try to turn the leaf and everything. Good. However, while Michelle is getting this together and trying to get the good life for them, they are still living at that home with all of the family members. Okay. And at this point, Michelle's dad has moved out. They've separated. And Michelle's mother has started dating this guy named Carlos. And Carlos is an alcoholic, abusive. He's a piece of shit. He's a fuck face. Yeah. So one night while he is drinking, he roughhouses with Joey and causes Joey to break his knee. When he's only two years old. What a, what a shithead. He's like a small child. Yeah, he's literally two. <sighs> so in a panic, Michelle takes him to the hospital to get him checked out, like get his knee fixed, all of that. Mm-hmm. And when asked about it by the hospital staff, Michelle was just in a panic, wasn't thinking, and said, oh, Joey fell down the stairs. A little while later, the boyfriend actually shows up at the hospital. Carlos, the abusive one who broke Joey's knee. Mm-hmm. shows up at the hospital and admits to what he had done to hospital staff. He's like, oh, I got drunk and I did that. Michelle's lying. What the hell? Really? Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. So hospital staff goes to Michelle and says, hey, is did Carlos really do this? And Michelle's like, yeah, yeah, he did. I I completely blanked and just said something that came out of my mouth. I'm sorry, and the hospital staff wasn't thrilled about this, but that wasn't their biggest issue. Their biggest issue was Joey, a two-year-old, lived in a home with an alcoholic, abusive piece of shit. Yeah, of course. That's, that is the issue, yeah. Yeah, that is the issue. So they, they, they can't be mad at her for lying about it, Yeah, you know, because, dude, she's probably scared anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can't be mad at her for that. Yeah. So unfortunately, with this discovery, however, of Carlos living there, Joey is placed into state custody. Oh, fuck, not good either. I know. To give Michelle time to, like, get a safe place for Joey to be with her and all of that. No, that's the wrong move. Just take that asshole, throw him in the drunk tank, throw him, put him somewhere. He's the one who did it. He literally broke a child's knee. Yeah. Do something about that. Don't remove the child from the mother just because some piece of shit. Mm Mm-hmm. Got drunk and broke his knee. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So, I don't agree with that. I know. So they take Joey, put him in state custody, and say, Michelle, you have to work really hard. You have to get a safe place. You have to get a job. You have to get X, Y, Z, jump through all these hoops to get your child back. Okay. What happened to Carlos? Did he have to work real hard to, to get out of jail I after something like that? I don't know what happened to Carlos. No, that, I know you hope his knee got broken. Oh, that pisses me off so bad. I know. That's like... That's like th- like victim blaming almost or something. It's yeah. not her fault. I know. It but, really sucks. Mm, the system's kind of fucky sometimes. Yeah, that makes me mad. I understand that he needs to be safe, but she's not the one preventing him from being safe. I know. But in the state's eyes or whatever, she's the one that put him in that house. Yeah. I know. Would they rather them be under the bridge? Yeah. It's... <laughs> I know. It's all shitty. Yep. I know. Michelle's life has literally just been up to this point. Shit after shit after shit. A glimpse of hope. Shit. Shit. 
Glimpse yeah. of hope. Shit. So Michelle is working, trying to get her son Joey back. Okay. Like going to all the court hearings, getting a job, jumping through the hoops, all of the stuff. Yeah. So we're going to fast forward to August 23rd, 2002. Okay. Michelle leaves her cousin's house and is heading to court for a hearing. And it's one of those hearings that would, quote, make or break her case to get Joey back. Like, it's a really important one. She cannot miss it. All of that. Okay. Michelle didn't have a car at this point. Of course not. That would be one small convenience. Yes. And this woman apparently isn't allotted any. Right. So she actually sets up a ride with a family member to get to the courthouse on time. Okay. Her caseworker had offered her a ride as well. However, since she had the ride set up with the family member, she declined the one from the caseworker. Okay. However, within three hours of the appointment, this family member has to cancel the ride and, like, recall their offer to drive Michelle. Oh, my God. I know. This girl's ticket has been punched ten times. Can she get a freebie in life, please? Good Lord. Yes. So, with not a lot of time and a straight determination to get her son back, Michelle and a friend who was still, like, with her while she was waiting for the family member, they actually began walking to the address that was on the papers. Okay. When asked about this, Michelle would actually state, quote, I was trying so desperately to get a hold of them to let them know I'd be late. I tried to call them on a payphone. It didn't work, so I felt like there's no way I was going to make it, end quote. Yeah. After hours of walking to try and find this address, the friend eventually gave up and left Michelle to find the place on her own. Of course. It's August in Ohio. It's hot. They've been walking forever. They can't find the address. It's not like a grid system or anything. It's in names of streets that curve and bend and all of that. Yeah, she doesn't have a apple maps to tell her where to go yeah it's 2002 she yeah. doesn't have a car yeah. let alone a cell phone at that point right michelle wanders into a family dollar and began asking everyone in the store if they could either a point her in the right direction b give her a ride to get her closer anything that she would be able to make this appointment Mm-hmm. much to your surprise i'm betting a familiar voice actually answers her plea for help inside the family dollar Mm-hmm. The voice says that they know where the address was and they would take her there. Okay. It's awesome. She caught a break. Yeah, who is it? Uh, this voice belonged to a friend of hers, Emily, her father. So Emily's father. Okay. His name is Ariel Castro. All right. Michelle accepts Ariel's offer because she's cutting it really close, if not already, kind of late to her appointment. So she's like, okay, yeah, if you know where it is, let's go. Yeah, let's go. Let's, let's fucking go. And, of, like, he was the father of one of Michelle's friends. Like, there was nothing weird about it. It's like you taking a ride from one of your friends' dads. Got it. So as Ariel and Michelle drive to her appointment to the courthouse, they began talking about Michelle and how she wanted to become a veterinarian, like we had mentioned. Mm -hmm. After finding this out, Ariel mentions that his dog actually had just had puppies. And he wasn't sure what to do with all the puppies, like the whole litter. So he actually offers one to Michelle uh, for her son. 
Okay. Uh, Michelle at first was resistant, but agrees and says, okay, yeah, we can stop by and get the puppy. Like, I don't like it. That's a puppy. Mm-hmm. It's not. There's something, yeah. It's a puppy. No, there are no puppies on this podcast. This isn't late night puppy podcast? Nope. Oh, okay. Well, you were correct. When the duo arrive at 2207 Seymour Avenue, they both walk inside the home, and spoiler alert, there are no puppies. Yeah, I would imagine. Ariel leads Michelle up to the second floor of his home, where he says he's got the puppies. However, he then ties Michelle's hands and feet together, attaches her to like a pulley-type thing, and actually suspends her by her feet, hands, and neck. And he does all of this with extension cording. Oh my god. So it was it sounded like he was pretty prepared to do something shitty like this. Yeah. Well, I mean it's extension cord, so it's not like he went out and got chains or anything. But... Yeah. Okay, but he led her to the room. Mm-hmm. He yeah, it sounds to me like he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously Michelle is screaming and everything, so Ariel proceeds to shove a sock into her mouth to stifle her screams. <sighs> So for the first three days that Ariel kept Michelle... Three days? Three days. He kept her tied up, just suspended in the air by these extension cords. And he didn't offer her any food or anything for these three days. <sighs> Holy shit. Yeah. He would go see her in the morning, go to work, come home, see her, go to work. What's he doing? What does he do for work? No, I don't give oh. a shit what he does for work. Okay. What is? What do you mean? Like, oh. what, why is he keeping her there? Well, he's just keeping Other her there. Other than the fact that he's a, a psychopath. Yeah, he's not a good guy, that's for sure. He is just, you know, I think he's trying to, like, weaken her and, like, break her spirit just by letting her literally hang there for three days. Oh, my God, this woman's spirit is mm-hmm. fantastic with mm-hmm. all the shit that she's been through already. Yeah. So after... The three days of this, he comes back with a sausage McMuffin from McDonald's or a sausage biscuit, one of the two, and says, here, eat this. Takes her down from the extension cording, and then he proceeds to sexually assault her. Of course. See, I knew there had to be something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. There is fuckiness abroad. So Ariel proceeds to rape Michelle multiple times the first few days that she is there. And would turn the music up really loud, like really, really loud in the house, just to further stifle these screams during and after the assaults. Fucking piece of shit. Michelle's words would later be used to describe these attacks as, quote, it was difficult, I had to go blank. Anytime he was doing anything to me, I had to put myself into a different place, end quote. So I bet you're wondering, was anyone looking for Michelle? Yeah, well, they, they, you would think the people that, that were holding this hearing for her son and stuff, they would wonder, yeah, where the hell she is. Yeah. So her mom actually did report her as a missing person with the Cleveland Police Department. Yeah. This missing person's report even escalated to the FBI database of missing persons. Good. In an interview with the Cleveland Plain Dealer, which is a newspaper at the time, mm-hmm. Michelle's grandmother, Deborah said that she believed Michelle had left on her own out of anger that her son had been removed from her custody. 
which I think if you knew Michelle, that that wouldn't have been true because she was obviously fighting like literal hell to get her son back. Yeah, that yeah, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. Other than these two things, there were no leads as to where Michelle had gone, what had happened to her. And 15 months later, in November of 2003, she would be removed from the missing persons database due to the fact that officers were unable to contact her mother to confirm that she was still missing. What the hell? So she's just not picking up the phone or what? Yeah, so police officers like called her mom and said, hey... Did you find her? Yeah. And she did, just didn't answer? Or yeah, what? they were oh, calling okay. to make those phone calls to say, hey, did she ever turn back up? Is she still missing? But her mom either, like, they weren't able to find her by phone number or just weren't able to get in contact with her. How long has she been, how long had she been missing at this point? 15 months. Jesus Christ. So we're in November of 2003. <sighs> okay. Yeah. So she had been going through all the sexual assault and all the mind games and everything for the past 15 months. Holy fuck. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about who Ariel Castro is now, other than a literal piece of human garbage. Yeah. No, no shit. Uh, Also, if he's, he's her friend, Emily's dad, like, where was she? How does she not know about this or or what? Oh, we'll explain that in this. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let's hear it then. Okay. So Ariel Castro was born on July 10th, 1960 in Puerto Rico to Pedro Castro and Lillian Rodriguez. Okay. Ariel had a total of nine siblings. All right. Ariel's parents divorced when he was a child, and he actually stayed with his mother after the divorce. Okay. When he was still relatively young, his mom actually moved to Pennsylvania with three other siblings and him. A little while after, however, the family would move to Cleveland, Ohio, where Ariel's father, Pedro, and other family members had moved a couple years prior. Mm, They should have left his ass there. They should have. Ariel goes on to graduate from Cleveland's Lincoln West High School in 1979. Ariel would then meet his girlfriend, Gramilda Figueroa, when his family moved across the street from hers sometime in the 1980s. And while they both lived at either Ariel's parents' house or Gramilda's parents' house for a little bit. They finally moved into their own home at 2207 Seymour Avenue in 1992. Okay. So this home is a two-story, 1,400-square-foot, four-bedroom, one-bathroom house with a 760-square-foot unfinished basement. So it's a pretty big house. Yeah, that's like a a pretty... Pretty good-sized house. Yeah. As they moved into their own home, Grimilda's sister, Elita, said that, quote, all hell started breaking loose, end quote. Before this, Ariel was showering Grimilda with gifts and affection and all of this because they lived at parents' homes. No, no, no. So once he got her alone, he turned into a dickhead. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Elida and her husband have made claims that Ariel would routinely beat Grimilda and had broken a number of things on her, including her nose, multiple ribs, her arms, and he had also caused a blood clot on her brain that had resulted in an an inoperable tumor. Oh my god. Yeah. What a... It's also said that after he would beat Grimilda... He would not allow her to go seek medical attention 
until she convinced him she would not tell on him. Of course. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. That that tracks. He's and a that, piece of shit. Yeah, and that's where the blood clot turned into a tumor. Right. So other allegations of his abuse towards Grimilda included that he had thrown her down a flight of stairs as well. Yeah. No, he's just a. I hate that shit. Why? Literal human garbage. Yep. In 1993, Ariel actually gets arrested for domestic violence against Grimilda. Good. However, because Grimilda would not testify against him because of her fear. Yeah, she's scared shitless of the man. Yeah. The grand jury decided not to indict Ariel because they didn't have enough without her testimony. God damn. So he gets off scot free. Mm -hmm. After this, however, the relationship that had been circling the toilet for two years now since they moved into this home began to go down the pipes officially. And it just continued in the cycle and continued and continued until 1996 when Grimilda would finally leave the home that she shared with Ariel and she also secured custody of their four children, including one of the daughters named Emily. Oh, thank goodness. She just got out of there. Good, She got good. out of there. Police actually had to assist in when Grimilda moved out, and they actually detained Ariel during this. However, they didn't end up pressing charges. Oh, man, that's a brave woman. Good, good mm-hmm. on you for getting you and your kids out of there. Yep. Unfortunately, this moving didn't stop. Ariel and his abuse. He continued to threaten and attack Grimilda even after she had left. Grimilda filed new charges against Ariel in 2005, nine years after she moves out. Oh my god. Accusing Ariel of inflicting multiple severe injuries to her and quote-unquote frequently abducting their daughters, including Emily. What a fucking, what a terrible childhood to have. Mm-hmm. What a piece of shit. Yeah. Just stay away, asshole. Like, yeah. dude, you're done. It's over. Yeah. But people like him, they just can't accept the fact that someone can live without them. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So while the court did grant a temporary restraining order against Ariel in 2005, it was dismissed just months later. But during all of this time and the time our story takes place, Ariel Castro is employed as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. He's a bus driver? For kids. For children? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yep. So that's a little bit about Ariel. He's just been a fuckface all his life. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Later on, there are allegations that he makes that he was, like, sexually abused as a child and physically abused, but that doesn't mean you have to do it, Ariel. I'm sorry. Michelle is breaking the cycle. Mm-hmm. Like. Yep. No excuses. Yep. Eight months into Michelle's captivity, Ariel decides to kidnap another girl. Ugh. So we're going to talk about Amanda. Uh, okay. Amanda Marie Berry was born on April 22nd, 1986, and went missing on April 21st, 2003. Okay. Did you recognize those dates? No. So she was born on April 22nd, and she went missing on April 21st. Okay. She was... She disappeared just one day before she turned 17. Yep. He's got to go after the little little girls, man. Mm-hmm. 
And even though Michelle was 21, she was four foot seven. Mm. So Amanda's about five feet, one inches tall. So she's smaller too. Well, Amanda was last heard from around 8 p.m. when she had called her sister to let her know that she was getting a ride home from her job at Burger King and wouldn't need her sister to come pick her up. Okay. And she was actually walking home though. I don't know if she did have a ride and it fell through or she just didn't want her Maybe sister to come get her. wanted to walk home, yeah. Yeah. So as Amanda is walking home, Ariel spots her and approaches her. Piece of shit. He offers to take her to see one of her classmates who happened to be Ariel's daughter. So I don't know if this is Emily as well or if it's another daughter because they had four children. Right. And I know they at least had two daughters, so... Could be. Well, with the age difference, it could be. It could be a different daughter. That's what I was thinking. It just, she wasn't named in this section, so I couldn't tell which one it was. Okay. So Amanda agrees. She's like, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to go see my friend, who is your daughter. Mm -hmm. Once Amanda steps into Ariel's home, she is brought upstairs to the room adjacent to where Michelle had been taken. Amanda would later state that, quote, He took me to the next bedroom, and it was just really dark in there, and he didn't turn on the lights, and there was a little, like, a little room off of the bigger room, kind of a big closet. He took me in there, and he told me to pull down my pants, and from there I knew, like, this was not going to be good, end quote. It's making me angry. Mm -hmm. Both of these people, Amanda and Michelle, both knew his daughters, Mm -hmm. right? But they somehow still trusted this man and that makes me wonder exactly how scared his family was of him because you would think that they would tell them like oh yeah my dad's a real piece of shit yeah don't talk to my dad don't talk to my dad don't be around when my dad's around yeah i don't talk to my dad i don't yeah right so they must be just terrified of this man i bet they are and i mean maybe grimilda hid as much of it as she could too from the kids that's true, too. So we don't know how much the kids, the daughters, how much they knew about what had gone on. Right. God. So Ariel does the same thing to Amanda that he had done to Michelle. He left her chain there for three days without food. And then after that, he came in and repeatedly sexually assaulted her and just carried on his days like this. She would suffer the same abuse that Michelle had been enduring for the past eight months. And this is happening simultaneously? Yes. Oh, my God. So the FBI originally considered Amanda a runaway due to her age and other things, like how she had told her sister, oh, I'm getting a ride, and then she had actually told, like, coworkers she was walking and things like that. Yeah. Uh, However, a week into her disappearance, Amanda's phone was used to place a phone call to her mother, and that's kind of what set off the FBI's thinking of, this isn't a runaway Someone took her and she is missing. Okay. So this call was not Amanda contacting home, however. It was an unidentified male that was using her cell phone. And he said, quote, I have Amanda. She's fine and will be coming home in a couple of days, end quote. Okay. After a few days, Amanda did not return home and the case actually grew to get national attention. In January of 2004... Police are actually dispatched to Ariel's home to investigate an accusation that he had left a child on the school bus, gone to get something to eat, 
drove around, and then took the kid home. Would not surprise me. Right? Like, I fully believe that is a story that happened. Yep. However, when authorities knocked on the door of Ariel's home, no one answered the door, and police were actually able to interview Ariel at a different time and location. Away from his home? Away from his home. Ah, damn it. Officials determined that there was no criminal intent, and he alleged that he had, quote-unquote, inadvertently left the child on the bus, so Ariel is not charged. Yeah, you can always just forget a kid on the bus. Right. Fucking idiot. When it's your job to make sure they all get off. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, in March of 2004, it looked as if there may be some answer to where Amanda could have gone. There was a body found in San Diego in early March of 2004, which is nowhere near Ohio. Yeah. But again, they weren't sure where she had gone or anything of that nature. This body was just matching a physical description of Amanda. Okay. However, it was not a match to Amanda's dental records. Because we know things the police don't know. We know that Michelle is still alive at this point, and Amanda's still alive at this point, and the same man kidnapped both of them. Right. Okay, so let's talk about Gina. Okay. Georgina Lynn de Jesus, who goes by Gina, and that's just what we'll call her from here on out, mm-hmm. was born on February 13th, 1990, and at the age of 14, on April 2nd, 2004, goes missing. No. Yes. She was last seen at a payphone around 3 p.m. while on the way home from her middle school. At the time of her abduction, she was actually friends with one of Ariel's daughters named Arlene. Oh, shit. She's... mm, That's so, so young. Mm -hmm. They're all young. They are. We have a 21-year-old mother of a 2-year-old. We have a 17-year-old, or 16, I guess she technically turned 17 the day after, and a 14-year-old. Disgusting. Mm Mm-hmm. So shortly before Gina disappeared like that afternoon, Gina and Arlene had called Grimilda, you know, Arlene's mother, Ariel's ex-wife, to ask permission to have a sleepover at Gina's house. Okay. Grimilda replied that they could not have a sleepover and that the two girls then parted ways. Okay. Arlene is actually the last person to see Gina before she disappeared. Gina's words would later proclaim that she was under the impression that Ariel was picking her up to drop her off at home and that she trusted Ariel as she was her friend's father. Ah, man. So Gina trusted Ariel to take her home. Mm Mm-hmm. That was not the case. Of course it wasn't. Yeah. So Ariel, unfortunately, takes Gina back to his house, and I don't know exactly what ruse he used, what wording... But he convinced her to go upstairs, and she would fall victim to everything that the other two girls had been going through these past months and years at this point. God damn it. Yeah. No one witnessed Gina's abduction, and an Amber Alert was not issued also, which angered Gina's father. I would say rightfully fucking yeah. so. Yeah, I would, I would say so too. So I had to look this up to make sure I had my timeline right. But the Amber Alert started back in 1996 and was fully inducted and, like, used throughout the U.S. by 2001. Okay. And Gina is abducted 
or missing in 2004. Like, okay, why so did that not happen? Well, yeah, that should have happened. Mm-hmm. Her father would actually later say in 2006 that, quote, the Amber Alert should work for any missing child, whether it's an abduction or a runaway. A child needs to be found. We need to change this law. 100%. Yeah, I fully agree with this man. Yep. A year after Gina's disappearance, the police sketch and description of a suspect was released to the public. The suspect is described as Latino, 25 to 35 years of age, 5 feet 10 inches, 165 to 185 pounds, with green eyes, a goatee, and a possibly pencil-thin beard. And what does Ariel look like? Ariel, according to court records, is 5 feet 7 inches, 179 pounds, which falls into it. He has brown eyes and a goatee. Pretty damn close. So two out of the four. Pretty close. Gina's case actually would go on to be featured in the America's Most Wanted segment, which actually is what linked her case to Amanda's case publicly. Okay. Both of the girls were around five foot one and actually taken from the same neighborhood. Yeah, there's there's a link there. Uh-huh. So these disappearances received regular media attention into 2012 while the families held public vigils on and off. Okay. Ariel attended at least two of these vigils, reportedly also participated in a search party, and tried to get close to Gina's family during all of this. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. Mm. It grosses me out. Like, I would like to remove my skin, please. Yep. Take a shower in burning hot water. So while efforts were strong to find Gina, like they had been for the other girls, there were no real leads. In 2004, Sylvia Brown, which does that name ring a bell to you? Yes, but I can't remember why. Okay. So she was a self-proclaimed psychic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep, I do remember that. Yep. She actually told Amanda's mother that Amanda was dead and that she was, quote, in water, end quote, while the cases were being covered on the Montel Williams show. Why would she do that? Because she's a psychic. Air quotes, psychic. Oh, big air quotes. Obviously, this proclamation devastated her mother, who actually took down Amanda's pictures, like, in the home and all of that, and gave away Amanda's computer. That's so sad. That she would do that, and then I'm sure that just ripped that woman's world to shreds at that point. Yeah. I don't know how this Sylvia woman could live with herself with something like that. Mm -mm. So Amanda's mother, even with being devastated and starting to give her things away and putting pictures, like, away, she did still continue to look for Amanda until her last day when her mother would ultimately die from heart failure in early March of 2006. <sighs> Amanda was still deemed officially missing at this point. God damn it. And I think that's as good a spot as any for part one. So we're going to leave it where we know all three girls are inside Ariel's house of horrors and unfortunately being sexually assaulted and everything else going on with them. I mean, Michelle's been there now for four years. Amanda's been there for three years. And Gina's been there for two. Okay, guys, that's it for part one. 
we obviously are going to give you part two of this story. And if you have reached this point, fear not, because part two is out right now. So go listen to the second part of this to find out what happens next. I hope they catch this scumbag and he gets what he deserves here. 